Hello, it's that time of the week. It's time for your Not The Top 20 podcast. It's a slightly longer podcast than usual, an hour and a half all in, so I hope that you've got the stamina for that. The reason is it's a, it's a two-parter, 45 minutes of George and I running through the weekend's football action across the EFL, and then 45 minutes picking the brains of Blades Analytic, also known as Jay Sosick. Jay is a true friend of the pod and we couldn't wait to pick his brains about all things recruitment, data, data recruitment and much more. So make sure you listen to the second half of the podcast for 45 minutes of recruitment chat. And first, it's George and I talking about the EFL weekend. George, how are you? Yeah, mate, I'm good. Uh, I'm lying on my bed doing this podcast, which is something I haven't done very many times before. Um, although last time I was on this bed, I was feeling pretty worse for wear on Friday morning. So uh, after a weekend away, I'm feeling a lot better now. What was what was the issue on Friday morning? Was it was it alcohol related, and why? If so, it sounds very unprofessional. <laughs> uh, it was the Sky Sports EFL Christmas party on uh, on Friday night. Obviously, sorry Thursday night. Obviously, all the people at Sky who covered the EFL had a very busy Christmas period. So it wasn't until January the 9th or whatever until they were able to, to celebrate. And, you know, we, we were very kindly invited um, because of our small little part we play on Friday nights. Um, I was obviously without you because you were on a romantic retreat. Um, so I went, went in solo. And uh, fair to say, any, um, yeah, any ambitions I had not to um, make a fool of myself uh, maybe went out the window because... It all gets pretty hazy at one point. I'm not someone that gets FOMO generally, but wow. Uh, as someone who works on, on weekends and has had to restrict my uh, social activity pretty heavily in the last few years because of that, uh, I, I, I normally don't get it, but I must admit missing the, the Sky EFL belated Christmas party was, was something that really gnawed away at me throughout the weekend. Well, what were the highlights for you, George? So many. Um, I was lucky enough to sit next to rival podcast host Caroline Barker at dinner um, so it was great to properly meet her and have a nice long chat because she's lovely a proper presenter uh, a proper presenter yeah exactly what we can aim for let's say but um and then had a good chat with Daniel Mann just a casual chat with Daniel Mann on a Thursday night this isn't helping me George continue <laughs> Daniel the man man the man uh, what a man he is as well so that was that was really exciting uh, and then had some, you know, some pretty big deals. Gary Weaver was another one I spoke to late on in the evening. Can't remember much about that. Um, but uh, and then obviously the, the big names, the ex-pros who were there. We had uh, Prutz, of course, Don Goodman, uh, Keith Andrews and Lee Hendry all there. And what I wanted to ask you before we get into analysing the weekend's football, because there was a very good quiz and the kind of premise of the quiz that everyone, everyone who was there was the answer to a question. And there were three questions that I really enjoyed. And I'm going to give them to you now. So number one, so remember the four ex-pros that I just said. Actually, no, five, sorry, five ex-pros because Scott Minto is there as well. Um, although I'm pretty sure that he actually didn't come into this. But anyway, what, which of those players had the most EFL or Football League appearances? The most EFL appearances out of that lot, I reckon... Or, or Football League, you know, this is just outside the top flight. Okay, um, I'm going to go... Not the top 20, basically. Yeah, thanks. Uh, I'm going to go with Keith Andrews. Incorrect. Ah. Don? Don Goodman. Ah, Don Goodman, yeah. It was between he, he the played, two. He only retired about three years ago, only 60. <laughs> so, uh, second question. 
who had the most Premier League appearances? The most Premier League appearances, that is an excellent question. I am going to go, I mean, I think it's got to be between Prutz and Lee Hendry. I'm going to go with Hendry. Correct. Correct. Thank you. Hendry, 12 seasons in the Premier League. Yeah. Um, we, me and him discussed how he basically had the same career as Jack Grealish so far with not quite <laughs> as much talent. Uh, and then finally, uh, who had the most England under 21 appearances? England under 21 appearances out of that bunch i think it's probably your friend and mine presenter david prutton correct 25 under 21 appearances what? never got into the senior team oh Absolute no disgrace that's, james, that's james milner levels of under 21 appearances exactly so yeah perhaps was the answer to that one but um no it was a great evening so thanks sky for their continued support and you know we're back on the uh back on on friday this coming friday for the first of six consecutive championship games Clear the decks, guys, on Friday nights because there's EFL action coming your way repeatedly over the next six weeks and and we're going to be a part of that. So uh, hopefully we'll be bringing you some interesting comment on various different topics over the next few weeks. Um, Those are Friday nights on Sky Sports. But, George, uh, one of the additional things about this weekend uh, was that because I was away and because I was trying my best to be a to be both uh, pleasant and present for my girlfriend on what is a rare weekend together. Um, I I genuinely and purposefully ignored the football scores on Saturday in a way that I, I think is the sort of thing that, that people do quite often. People who don't work uh, on the Football League highlights show, uh, it's the sort of thing that, that you might do and you might be able to do. But I haven't done this for as long as I can remember, at least five years. And it was a bizarre experience. I got up early on Sunday morning uh, and I had two hours in the dark watching Quest. And it was, I mean, if I'm honest, it was, I didn't really enjoy it. I felt very out of control. I, I didn't know what was going to happen. I had the experience of, of sort of second guessing the commentary, the reports to try and work out what was going to happen. And I wasn't sure if that was a good or a bad thing in terms of viewing experience. It was all very strange, but... I mean, what a weekend to, to, to not know the scores on Saturday because certainly at the top of the championship, I mean, you can fill in the blanks for me, but I mean, watching the highlights, it was absolute carnage. We had a, we had a Charlton draw with West Brom. We had Sheffield Wednesday winning at Ellen Road. Uh, at Brentford beating QPR with a first half BMW blitz uh, and Fulham grinding out uh, an unusual for them 1-0 away win at, uh, at Hull. Which of those games... For you, living it on Saturday seemed the the biggest, the most important story. I think at the top end of the table, you have to say that's where this weekend feels like a a bit of a sliding doors moment. And we've said for about six weeks or so, is it over? Is the promotion race over? And that isn't even a question anymore. There's absolutely no denying the fact that West Bromwich Albion and Leeds, despite still enjoying a comfortable gap at the top end of the table, them dropping points, and Brentford picking up a big win as, as well at home to continue their good form means that this is now, this is an open title race, let alone a promotion race. And, and the team who are currently in form are sitting in third. I, fi- I don't know if it was last week or the one before. I was maintaining that the likelihood of Brentford essentially picking up points uh, at the level of, of a team that you know essentially needs to be the best team pretty much from here on out seemed unlikely in order to close the gap over Leeds and West Brom. And it's hard not to waver there. The fact is that, uh, according to Mark Taylor on Twitter, something that I saw earlier, there is still very little leeway for error for Brentford. They've got to accrue points 
like uh, typically a top of the table side for the rest of the season just to reach the, the sort of crossover point where them getting into the top two becomes probable rather than than improbable. Uh, do you think they have that in them? Uh, any question marks we, we have? I mean, do, are there still lingering question marks that this Brentford team could go through a, a patch that we've seen from them before where they struggle away from home and maybe struggle to put teams away at home? Yeah, of course, there's a concern. I mean, there has to be. We talk about looking at their home form at the moment. I mean, they haven't lost at home since they lost to Huddersfield back in, in early November. And that was on the back of a really, really good run. So, I mean, they are going to drop points this season. I'm not here telling you that they're going to um, suddenly run away with, with the title. But given they've got both West Brom and Leeds at home in the coming weeks, uh, Leeds in just kind of three or four uh, match days, if they can maintain their current kind of uh, points per game ratio over the last... 10, 15 matches, then you know, they could feasibly go into that one, needing a victory to, to draw alongside or, or at least to tuck in behind Leeds. One uh, and, and I also, but I also think that the key thing as well is Brentford's having that game in the early kickoff, getting those three points on the board would definitely have had a bearing on what happened later on for both West Brom and Leeds because if they go into those games as, as three o'clock with that still nine point cushion between them, it's a very, very different one. Whereas now, going into it, Leeds and West Brom, knowing that if they do drop points, they've got a team breathing down their necks who undoubtedly have the quality within their team to, to mount a, a challenge is it, huge. And that, you know, there might be a six-point gap now, but that's in no way, um, you know, even if people say they need, you know, you see it with the Premier League at the moment, saying that City need to get X wins and X draws or whatever. Well, ignore that. The only thing that matters is they are currently six points behind a team that they're, they're playing at home in four matches. So, so feasibly, that's that's a win away from being within three points, um, and you know that's that's the key stat here. And if they can just keep in touching distance up to then, then it's going to be wide open. The scheduling of games is interesting, and, and as you as you say, will have an impact. I remember it definitely was a thing last year when Sheffield United and Norwich and Leeds, when they were challenging for those top two positions, they were very rarely playing at the same time, uh, and that does add a few wrinkles into things. Uh, there are now. I would say, four pretty established uh, time slots for championship games. We've had, to me, a very welcome addition of a, of a Sunday lunchtime game, a Sunday mid, midday game on Sky, uh, which has joined the early Saturday game at 12.30 and the Friday night game as well at 7.45. So along with the 3 p.m.s, you know, there are four slots now uh, and, it's, and it's certainly you would expect that, uh, that the powers that be will be looking at these well, certainly the top two teams, West Brom and Leeds, as, as teams to feature very heavily. And then the chasing pack, you'd expect Brentford and, and Fulham and Nottingham Forest to get plenty of TV selections as well. So that will come into things. For West Brom, it was hugely frustrating. A game against Charlton in which they led twice and conceded two goals that you have to say are soft from set pieces. Um, that, that defensive issue that they have has not quite gone away. Uh, and that will be playing on their mind. Their fans a bit concerned about recent form. Certainly the same with Leeds, who have just won one of their last six league games. It's the second time this season that we've seen a, a wobble of sorts from this Leeds United team. And, and with plenty of people harking back to last season and previous seasons, using that as a stick to, to beat this current Leeds team and, and predicting uh, psychological wobbles as much as, uh, as much as physical and fitness wobbles, uh, they have really to stand up to to a big challenge now, both Leeds and and in different ways West Brom. But credit to Sheffield Wednesday, uh, they they rode their luck at times. They were one of many teams who have played Leeds and 
have benefited from some poor finishing, some good chances for Leeds in the first half, but it wasn't and it, it wasn't a smash and grab in the sense of, of some of those earlier games. The one against Swansea really stands out at Ellen Road. Uh, a 2-0 winners and created two good chances towards the end of the game, having kept it tight. So massive credit to Sheffield Wednesday and, and Gary Monk. They'd lost three in a row before then. Yeah, and, and also missed chances beforehand. I mean, I think Leeds could have easily been two or three up by the time Sheffield Wednesday got a, got a foothold in the game. Um, for missing another couple of chances and you know the need I think for him to be pushed by another striker coming in is important I think we're going to talk about that in a second but the interesting thing for, for Sheffield Wednesday is that they they did to Leeds what I think many people have tried to do in exposing the the attacking fullbacks in both goals came from Murphy and, and Reach getting in behind the fullbacks who commit themselves so high up the pitch and teams have struggled to, to, to pull that off because Leeds are so good at winning the ball back as soon as they lose it so I think for, for oppositions watching on to see them getting joy in those areas at that, at that late stage is going to be fairly important. And it's a kind of Leeds managed to rebuild their sense of being fairly unbeatable and, and that th they had at this time last season before they ended up conceding all those goals towards the back end. And my concern would be that it looks like that could happen again. Um, but at the same time, they won one of their last six leads, but I'm pretty sure that isn't a run that's going to continue. And I wouldn't be you know, panicking too much as one of their fans. Sheffield Wednesday now in that last playoff spot, certainly on merit and certainly one of the teams that we're very impressed with over the last few months. But of course, still the cloud of potential points deduction or sanctions hanging over them, which makes it very difficult to, to be too strong on their future prospects. But Fulham uh, ground out a win at Hull. It, it sounded like a horrendous game. Uh, it was one of only, I think, two or three scores I did know when I watched. And that's because our friends at, on the Fulhamish podcast, they run this excellent WhatsApp service, which I subscribe to. Uh, and I'd forgotten to mute them on WhatsApp. So I got a message from them saying, goodness me, this is <laughs> not quite, <laughs> not quite. The halftime and full-time report, which was basically like, this is the most miserable game ever. Uh, but what a goal from Ivan Cavallero. And it sounds like... Has, has he done has he ever scored a goal that isn't him on the left-hand side bending a ball into the top right-hand corner with his right foot? Because I'd like to see it. Yeah, just checking. Just che No, no, he hasn't. That's that's yeah, all he's ever done. So. Uh, Michael mm. Hector straight into the team, uh, having joined early in January. And you have to say they, they the early signs are good. Hector, a player that we rated very highly with Sheffield Wednesday last season and surely makes this Fulham team, who have looked vulnerable at times, uh, a little bit more solid. But the big concern was an injury to Mitrovic, stretched off with an ankle injury. And Scott Parker was pretty downbeat after the game, saying that it doesn't look great at this present moment in time. So considering their their lack of other options, really, through the middle, Fulham, that has to be a concern. Uh, I, I'm, I'm willingly ignoring AK-47 at this time because I'm adamant that <laughs> he's not a viable replacement, although I have been proven wrong before. Uh, out of the other games, George, which results were catching your eye? There was a, a big game down at the bottom, two teams in miserable form in Luton and Birmingham, and it was Birmingham who got the big three points there. Yeah, a game um, lacking in a fair bit of quality. Two really scrappy goals from Birmingham and a penalty um, from James Collins as well. Not really much to go off to suggest, you know, to suggest that either of these teams um, are going to be getting, getting their way out of trouble anytime soon. It's obviously a really important three points for Birmingham, but it wasn't as if they uh, you know, returned to any uh, great level of performance. I mean, their past success rate I spotted yesterday was only 58%. Uh, um, where away at Luton, if you're kind of being that wasteful with the ball, um, 
doesn't suggest they're going to be improving much in, in the coming weeks. But it's still a, a massive three points for them. It's becoming pretty hard to see a way out for Luton now. Um, there might only be f- five points off Stoke in 21st, but it's pretty desperate week in, week out now. And um, it seems strange that kind of four or five weeks ago, there, there was a bit of a clamour for Graham Jones to be showing the door. That, for some reason, seems to have quietened up a bit. I don't know if that's the case of Luton fans accepting their fate. Um, but I'm pretty amazed that he's still in a job because he's done a pretty good job of, of dismantling. Uh, you know, there, there are circumstances around, that, you know, what happened in the summer that we've spoken about before, but, um, you know, the, 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 the drop-off in performance levels has been pretty alarming and, and he's been at the front of it. Yeah, there's a, there's a run of games now. It, it's probably about 14 or 15 games uh, in which they've beaten Charlton and Wigan at home at Kenilworth Road, 2-1, both of those. They got a point against Fulham as well at home, and otherwise they've lost all of the other fixtures. And, and that, that losing seems to have become a habit. One team that's got out of the habit and is moving away from Luton at the moment, trying to get towards Birmingham, although Blues, despite the fans' dismay at recent form and, and style under Pep Clotet, they do have an eight-point gap between themselves in the relegation zone, which is which is really valuable for them at this stage. One team still in the relegation zone, but in good form, is Barnsley, George. They beat Huddersfield 2-1 here. This was one of your predictions on the uh, betting show, which went pretty well for us uh, this week, I should mm. say. Uh, and Barnsley, certainly in terms of league form, under Gerhard Struber, are, are turning into, uh, well, they're pretty much projecting like a mid-table team at the moment, which bodes fairly well. Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, the good thing for Barnsley fans, I think, is the, you know, impressive performances he's getting out of key players. Uh, it's not just been a case of bringing in new talent, although I think we're going to see a couple of guys who's brought in already from from the continent in the next couple of weeks. But you look at the, you know, Jacob Brown, who's really struggled to make much of an impact so far this season with two assists and a really good bit of work for the first goal, um, laying it on a plate for Alex Mauer to tap in. Um, Corley Woodrow out injured for this one, didn't really miss him at all. Um, with Mauer really thriving in that kind of withdrawn, uh, almost like a 10 roll, I guess, is a little bit withdrawn as, as a 10. And Connor Chaplin in amongst the goals with a really smart finish from close range. Uh, there's just so much to like about this Barnsley team. It seems very hard to, to, to see them dropping away massively. I think this is more than, you know, I don't really believe in new manager bounces anyway, but this feels like a manager coming in with new ideas, good ideas, and getting the best out of a talented set of players. We knew had talent the whole time. It was just, for whatever reason, the season started so poorly. So uh, between two strugglers, you know, it, it, this game six, eight weeks ago when the Cowleys first came in, um, you'd have thought it would have been uh, an easy three points on the road for them. But suddenly, after such a good start and after you know, Huddersfield fans rightly uh, being so excited about what the Cowleys were bringing to the club, um, they are right back in, in trouble now and, and they need to arrest this slide pretty quickly. Um, the goal-scoring form of Colin Grant going out the window in the last few weeks has come at a really, really bad time and, and they need to find a way to get their key man scoring again because you look at the teams below them, Stoke on a decent or a better run of form, Barnsley picking up points at will. Um, you know, I, I personally think that Wigan and Luton look fairly desperate at the moment, but there's still one spot that someone's got to fill. And given that you know the form they're on and the performances they're putting in, Huddersfield are right in that equation. Quite enjoyed Camel Grabara's little uh, little run around in the opposition box towards the end of the game and asking for a penalty as he was banging around like a bull in a china shop. I also loved. 
Lewis O'Brien's uh, absolute howitzer for Huddersfield, a, a rare moment of quality from them. And it, it probably, it might be my favourite goal of my of my watching of Quest when I didn't know what was coming. Uh, it really came out of the blue, and as did a remarkable strike from Famara Jeju, which didn't count. And I still haven't quite worked out why it didn't count, whether there was a, an offside in the build-up. I don't think there was a foul, but it was an absolute howitzer. Thankfully, mm. he, he also scored another uh, and assisted Patterson's goal. Uh, a response potentially to the constant, constant just questioning and opining from Bristol City fans and observers alike that they need a striker and Jeju and Vyman aren't good enough. Well, Jeju puts in these performances every now and again where he, he, he's pretty much unplayable and that's what Wigan had to deal with on the weekend Bristol City uh, a 2-0 win that return from loan for Patterson didn't work out for him at Derby um, but he, he got a lot of credit for a great performance in this away win Bristol City with the fourth best away record in the championship this season consistently good at away from home under Lee Johnson the thing that's holding them back no surprise that home form, the 18th best record in the league, not good enough if they are to get into the playoffs. And as for Wigan, well, it's time that we just leave leave behind any any sort of um, uh, any positivity about their home form. Uh, that was the one thing keeping their heads above water, but that's gone now as well. They have the the third worst record at home, uh, just 16 points from 13 games, and it's pretty desperate, I must say. That it's another one, a bit like Luton, where it felt like. The real hysteria was a few weeks ago at Wigan and it almost seems to have calmed down. It appears that Paul Cook will, will very much be the man to take them forward. So they're another team like Luton that, that need changes and need it fairly swiftly. Otherwise, they will be back in League One in, in a few weeks' time. Uh, it's around that time of year, George, January, where the transfer window is open and there's lots of chat about it. Now, we've got 45 minutes of expert insight from Jay Sosick of Blades Analytic coming up when we're done with our rattle through of the weekend results. Um, but just something to discuss. Uh, Phil Hay, who covers Leeds United for The Athletic, our sponsors, uh, he's been working hard to provide some some transfer insight on The Athletic site at the moment. And uh, today we found out that Jack Clark, formerly of Leeds, uh, is poised to join QPR on loan, which is quite an interesting one for them. Uh, and he should be ready to play against Leeds this weekend if selected, which is pretty fascinating. But in terms of Leeds themselves and another team for whom a striker is uh, is being, well, has been really fetishised, I think, for, for a few months. They're not the only ones. But when it comes to Leeds, Phil Hay is doing the reporting and there's one name that is on everyone's lips at the moment, George. Yeah, Che Adams is seemingly the key target. Um, and we often talk about uh, Leeds being a side, Marcelo Bielsa's philosophy being that they will only bring in the right people. And it seems like they have their sights set on Adams, who, of course, was so good for Birmingham last season and has really struggled for, for form at Southampton, yet to score a goal, I think, in 16 Premier League appearances, uh, put in a very good display recently at, at Stamford Bridge, uh, maybe not getting a goal, but but certainly showing signs, you know, that all-action um, striker that we saw last season who does so much more than just score goals. He runs the channels very well. He's powerful. Um, and he's just a, a, a live wire, really, um, for, for any team that, that wants to have him in there. Um, so multifaceted. And it's, it would be a shame to see him leave Southampton. But crucially, we can see why he would be a good fit at Leeds. Uh, we know that Marcelo Bielsa said that he didn't think Nketiah did enough 
really outside the box. And the reason why he, he likes Bamford so much is because of, of him, you know, having many of the qualities, I guess, that Adams has, even if they are slightly different players, um, both guys who can score goals whilst also imp- uh, you know, kind of impacting games uh, outside of the box as well. And Phil's piece uh, is very analytical in much better detail than I just gave then. He gives examples of why um, Adams uh, could play in, in that system, for you know, in, could take up Bielsa ball so crucially. Um, but it seems like the stumbling block could well be uh, Saints manager Ralph Hasenhutl, who doesn't want to lose him, uh, especially not in January. Yeah, certainly not a done deal, according to Phil Hay, but... He is the the man in the know. He's the man to be following, really, for all these updates. And The Athletic have got a really good way of covering the transfer window, of course, at Premier League level, but also uh, plenty of EFL tidbits on site. If you want to give that a go, if you haven't subscribed to The Athletic, but you would like to, then we can sort you out with a seven-day free trial and 50% off uh, the annual price for the first year. That is, if you go to theathletic.co.uk, forward slash NTT20, you'll find out how to get that, how to sign up uh, and how to give that a go. Uh, Just the greatest stable of football writers in one place on the internet. That's The Athletic and and, uh, a bit of George Ellick every now and again and maybe in the future a bit of Ali Maxwell. Who knows? Who knows? (laughs) Not often I I whip the pen out, but you you never know. (laughs) You never know. Look, George, we're going to League One now. We're staying careful and we're going to League One where we have new leaders for the first time in a long time. Wickham continuing to drop points to the point where they are now off the top. And it's Rotherham, not Oxford United, who reached the top. We didn't give them enough credit when we spoke last week because you kept banging on about yellows. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, they got their revenge. They they rather did a job on your lot in the first half there, and and they rise to the top of the table all of a sudden, looking quite ominous. This Rotherham side. Yeah, it was a kind of a weird one looking back at it now. Um, I texted you after. It was quite funny seeing Paul Warren, the, the Rotherham manager, who's a manager I've got a lot of time for, saying that Oxford did uh, his team talk for him by locking them out of the ground. But what he doesn't realise is that Oxford don't own their ground, and sadly they they too are locked out. Um, before before midday, so, tin so pot, definitely that. tin pot. So definitely no mind games there, but but I'm sure that um, you know Oxford will be keen in future not to do opposition team talks for them uh, and things they can't control. But it was yeah from Oxford's point of view because obviously that's what I can I can provide here. It was a, a troubling team selection um, as soon as it came out um, with you know Simon Eastwood Eastwood back from injury should have been a massive plus, um, but he hadn't played for six weeks and I think fair to say he was. Um, at fault for the second goal, possibly at fault for the first goal as well. Um, and Carl Robinson decided to bring Elliot Moore in at centre-back ahead of John Massinho. So to bring back, you know, a keeper who hadn't played for a while and a centre-back who, um, who you know, breaking up your, your back-two partnership was an interesting decision. Also, not playing any of the new signings made, you know, Marcus Brown and, and Nathan Holland came off the bench at half-time and was, you know, apparently Oxford's best two players in the second half. Um, and also playing Jamie Mackey up front. It was just, it, it felt like maybe Carl Robinson was trying to be a bit too clever with his team selection and it massively backfired. What was um, the, what were the strengths so, of Rotherham? How did they exploit that? Well, I think Carl Bissell, um he exploited Oxford's high line and lack of pace pretty comfortably uh, with the second goal. Um, Sam Long and Josh Ruffles as well. I mean, that's the other thing, Sam Long coming in uh, right back. <laughs> With Chris Cadden's departure, it was basically a new back five, and and you know they're two uh, fullbacks who maybe 
are defensively fairly sound, but aren't um, the, the quickest. And Ogbené certainly showed up um, uh, ruffles for the first goal as well. It's just, I mean, credit to Rotherham because they, they certainly deserve it. But, but from an Oxford point of view, when you've got basically five of your best seven players on the bench, you know, 3-0 down at home at half-time, then it, it, it's, it's kind of frustrating. OK, um, well, we, come, we seem to keep coming back to Oxford. So let me talk about Rotherham no, no, for but, a bit. Especially, but no, you know, when, you, when you're playing against a team who are top of the league and rightly so, who come into it, you know, as basically the informed team in the division. I'm not disrespecting them in, in any way. Um, just maybe saying that there's more to this result that meets the eye and I'd be surprised if, if it's a form line that continues for too long. Yeah, smashing form at the moment. Four wins in a row for Rotherham has seen them go to the top of the table. Uh, they drew two before that uh, and lost two before that. So they have been uh, streaky to some extent over the last few months, uh, but it's a good streak at the moment and it, and it could continue. They've got games against Bristol Rovers, uh, Peterborough, Ipswich and Burton coming up and then Lincoln away. So it's not an easy run for them, but they've hit the top. Uh, the emergence of Carl Vassell has been huge, as you say. He seems to be scoring every single game at the moment. Uh, Michael Smith, not in the goals as much, but providing the, the, the perfect file for Vassell, which sees Freddie Ladapo uh, just reduced to a bench role at the moment. That kind of sums up the strength that they do have in, in key areas of the pitch. Uh, they've signed Hakeem Adelikan on loan from Bristol City. Him and Ogbené on paper down each flank with those two through the middle. Uh, is a fairly dangerous uh, front four, certainly very skillful and pacey wide men. And, and if Crooks and Barlasser can continue to, to do enough in the centre of midfield defensively, uh, and both of those guys with plenty of quality going forward, Crooks as a goal threat, Barlasser as more of a creator, uh, it, it certainly bodes well for Rotherham. The back five themselves are doing really well since uh, Wood has come back from injury. Him and Ahikwe keeping things tight and, and Iverson in goal. Looks like uh, an, another sort of on-loan goalkeeper that will go on to, to much greater things as he gets experience in League One. So Rotherham are now there to be shot at. It'll be interesting who who really puts them under pressure. Uh, you'd expect Oxford to bounce back. But we also had Sunderland beating Wickham 4-0 and their form turning around slightly. And Ipswich, who had no win in 12 in all comps before the weekend, thrashing Accrington Stanley in both teams it wasn't just the uh, wasn't just the result, George, that stood out, but the performances as well. Both of them playing like the title contenders that they were meant to be before the start of the campaign. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I mean, the, the thing about Ipswich and Sunderland is that these are performances that we expected to see every week, as you mentioned, and um, it's almost a bit terrifying to see them putting in these result these performances at the end of such bad spells and seeing them sitting pretty in third and six on 41 and 38 points, because if they can continually play in this way and, and put teams to the sword as they have done, then it's going to be very hard for other teams to, to keep them at arm's length. Um, with Ipswich, a, you know, speaking to some Ipswich fans, talk of them employing overlapping centre-backs. Hmm. Um, I think this is the first time we've seen uh, a manager to try and uh, implement what Chris Wilder's done at Sheffield, uh, Sheffield United. Interestingly, that Luke Wilfenden was linked by some reports to a move to Sheffield United just before this game. So maybe Paul Lambert saw that and thought he would have a go at seeing what um, what Chris Wilder saw. And he, of course, pro provided an assist with a galumphing run down the left-hand side. Uh, so, I mean, it, I mean, I, I personally have thought that Paul Lambert's really struggled to show any tactical now in the last few weeks to, to try and arrest this slide. So interesting to see him doing that. And for Sunderland, uh, a bit awkward now, I guess, for Sunderland fans um, who have been 
pretty uh, vocal in their lack of support for Phil Parkinson. Um, they haven't lost a league game now um, for in six. They've won their last two, scoring seven goals at home. Uh, I'd be interested to know when Jack Ross got his team scoring seven goals uh, in consecutive home games um, and decent and a decent point away at Fleetwood as well. On top, uh, shouldn't come as a massive surprise that Phil Parkinson's got this team playing well. I, 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 I'm fairly baffled by the signing of Carl Lafferty. I don't understand how that's going to add anything on the pitch or off the pitch. It seems like a really bizarre decision. Um, I'm sure he'll prove me wrong shortly, but they have a, so many options up front and so many different varieties. Um, and a guy who, uh, you know, it's, it's no secret that coaches and managers find him hard to deal with off the pitch. So a bit of an odd one there. But um, but I mean, I would personally would be leaning on the side of Sunderland, if you ask me which of Sunderland or Ipswich, I think we'll, we'll kick on from this this bit of form. I think there was a lot from, from the from the Accrington game that maybe fell on Ipswich's plate a little bit. And I think there are some deficiencies in that team and, and maybe in a dugout that, that could be exposed. Both of them putting in sensational first half performances as well to, to really put both games to bed before they even reached half time. Uh, you talked about Wolfenden as an overlapping centre-back. I read a piece on the excellent Sunderland website and podcast and fanzine Roker Report and uh, Jordan Willis has been doing the same thing for Sunderland, just adding another dimension to their attack, which has helped them mm. in recent weeks. So uh, interesting to see Chrissy Wilder. He set up the second, didn't he? He did indeed. So interesting to see mm. Chrissy Wilder's influence dripping down into League One and, and beyond. Uh, well, maybe with uh, maybe with uh, Phil Parkinson deciding to snap up as many strikers as he can in January, he's just decided to go full Wilder, mm. just overla- overlapping centre-backs and just going to buy as many six-foot-four strikers as possible and shove them all in my team in Jan. Yeah, perfect. <laughs> exactly. Well, the the one that's really catching my eye for Sunderland at the moment is the left wing back Denver Hume, who uh, I was looking at some more datary type things, looking at fullbacks, uh, those who progress the ball either running with it or passing it. And Hume is a massive outlier in League One, uh, really, really posting fantastic numbers and and providing an attacking outlet for Sunderland that has seen them uh, really boost their their attacking. Uh, form over the last few weeks so he's someone to keep an eye on him and Lyndon Gooch and Chris Maguire whoever's playing in that in that left-sided forward role uh, working really well and for Ipswich it was just good performances from all the players that we've kind of wanted to see good performances from Uh, Alan Judge in the 10 role uh, Caden Jackson and Norwood an absolute handful up front Flynn Downs and Emma Hughes uh, sort of feeding the ball forward nicely as well. So really good vibes for them. Pompey got a, 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 a just about scraped a home win against Wimbledon. Not much to write home about there. Uh, although Ronan Curtis did provide a wonderful assist. Uh, and Donny are another team, George, before we move on to League Two to touch on. They've won four of their last five and they're playing some really nice stuff, uh, both in their game uh, last weekend and in their win this weekend. Uh, been notable how how pretty some of the passing football is that leads mm. to, to their chances. Uh, and all of those four wins of their last five have come without conceding a goal. So they're another team who are really looking like they might be easing their way towards the top of the table. But when you look at the table, mate, it's absolute carnage, isn't it? There's only eight points between Rotherham in first and the team in 12. So eight points separate the top 12 teams. You can go down further, 10 points between first and 14th. 13 points between 1st and 16th. I mean, I think we have to put a moratorium on, on actually making any predictions at the moment <laughs> because it's making us look stupid. Yeah, it is. It is. And, uh, you know, you, you mentioned Doncaster there. They were one team who I 
definitely would not have had down as being a, a team about to burst into life. But everything you say about them is absolutely correct. Um, they are good value for their for their wins at the moment, um, playing a really nice brand of football. I think Ben Sheaf is someone who's going to have a really big second half of the season. Um, you know, he's the person controlling that midfield uh, on loan from Arsenal. No surprise to see, you know, a technically gifted player um, doing his thing for them. and um, Helping to get the best out of Whiteman as well, who's taken on such an important role for them this season. Exactly, exactly. I think they're the perfect four for each other. Um, and yeah, it's... Uh, yeah, I mean, I, as ever, and I, I don't want to sound like a broken record, but it's easy to sit here and, and praise a team who've won four in the bounce. Um, the chances are that's going to end fairly soon, but they've given themselves, you know, they, they didn't look like playoff challengers um, a couple of weeks ago. And, and now um, you have to say that, that they are. So, so credits Darren Moore, who maybe needed to answer some critics because he hadn't necessarily done enough for me since coming in in the summer. Um, but they're now currently sitting eighth position on 37 points, just two points off Sunderland in sixth. So credit to him. Now in League Two, there were quite a few notable results. Number one being Swindon Town, Owen Doyle-less for the first time after his recall by Bradford City, uh, switching to three at the back to take on Crewe and winning 3-1. It was a, a, a switch that Richie Wellens explained very well on the Quest Highlights show where he was a guest. I thought he was excellent. Uh, did nothing mm. Did nothing to dispel my theory that this is a man and a manager that will be managing at a much higher level than this uh, for the majority of his career. Uh, but Swindon have come up against Plymouth away, Bradford at home and Crewe at home. It was after we had pointed out they hadn't beaten anyone in the top 10 uh, and they've come away with seven points from three games. And that, George, is the form and performance of potential promotion candidates. People are really enjoying tweeting you saying what do you think what, about swindon what do you think about swindon under, george I, don't, I was going to mention i don't understand this I, I think they might be getting us muddled up because i've been positive about them basically all season even though you know for obvious reasons i don't like them very much and you're the one who keeps pointing out that they haven't beaten anyone in the top 10 and suddenly i'm getting pelters from people calling me a muppet and asking me how swindon are doing you are a muppet um, i've been i've been you know i've, I've been impressed by wellens and and, and this swindon team um, as much as anybody, and it's no surprise to see them still going going strong at the top end of the division. Uh, I think with managers like Wellens, where you know the, it's the style of play rather than the personnel, I think that's really important, and the way that they play and the way they set up will always create chances for a striker. So I have no doubt that whoever's playing up top um, for for Richie Wellens' Swindon team in League Two is going to score goals. And Jerry Yates was the beneficiary of that on Saturday uh, with a fantastic uh, finish, and you could see how much it meant to him to grab that goal. Uh, and I'm sure he has his sights set on Doyle and trying to usurp his, his former teammate um, to the top top end of the goal scorer charts. They're being linked to a host of strikers, um, Brett Pittman being one of them, who would be very interesting indeed. He kind of fits that mould of, of Doyle, not particularly mobile, but someone who comes alive in the box and very good both in the air and with his feet. Um, Will Grigg, another one, um, a slightly different kind of player, I guess, where he's not going to offer much of a, a physical presence. Um, although Doyle, I mean... It, I think Doyle's probably better in the air, even if he's not physical. But Greg, I'm, I'm sure, would score goals in this team as well. So a few players there who, who could come in. But it looks to me that, like in Yates, they've got a player who's who's already uh, you know, bought into what Wellens is doing. He already fits in well into that system. And he's already scoring so many goals, despite not necessarily getting the, the, the goal-scoring role for much of the season. Mm. So um, credit to Swindon. Um, fingers crossed from a personal level it falls apart, but I have a feeling it's not going to. Yeah, I did enjoy someone tweeting you saying, shame that muppet George Ellick wasn't on quest with Richie Wellens tonight. And you saying, yeah, agreed, as I would have loved to meet him. Just really <laughs> yeah. kill him with kindness. His, his response to that didn't, 
didn't slag you off at all. You just wanted, just turns out the bloke just wanted to talk to someone about football. But that's and why I'm obviously I quite lonely. I, I'd, I'd like to know why. I mean, unless it's just the fact I'm an Oxford fan and I, and I don't like them, which would be totally fair. Celebrity so. Oxford United fan. That's, that's what you well, are, mate. Me, me, <laughs> me, me and Tim Henman. Yeah, exactly. And Timmy Mallet. Timmy Mallet. He's the one, isn't he? Uh, look, uh, Owen Doyle's return to Bradford was overshadowed by uh, Ollie Palmer of Crawley, who played up front for them. And about three times a year, Ollie Palmer plays like Zlatan Ibrahimovic. And uh, this was this was one of those games. He wasn't just uh, throwing his, his height and weight around, which he does very well and making it difficult for the Bradford centre-backs who have been impressive in the last few weeks, but also uh, goal-scoring opportunities are plenty and finishing well. And, and, and John Yems has started well, quietly, as, as Crawley boss, which is great if you're going to make that managerial change that they did in the position where, you know, they were unlikely to get dragged into a relegation battle, but things clearly were, were just ticking along quite quite poorly. Uh, to make that change and to get a good response is, is what you're after. Uh, they've beaten Northampton and Bradford in the last few weeks and got draws against Forest Green, Colchester and away at Grimsby as well. So a good start for him. Uh, Ollie Palmer won't play like that every week, sadly. And then two really textbook wins from two textbook League Two uh, title or promotion challenges. Exeter winning to nil for the seventh time at home in the league this season. It was absolutely textbook. This was not a game in which they absolutely dominated, but it was a game they managed. It was a game they they controlled, even without necessarily controlling the ball. Uh, and it was a brilliant goal to go ahead. Uh, Bowman with the tap in, but really good play from the Exeter midfield. And they, they just seemed to be able to do that. They seemed to be able to manage these tight games to keep clean sheets or to keep the opposition at bay for the most part. Uh, and uh, and to, to, to create enough goal-scoring opportunities to get ahead. Uh, and Cheltenham, I would say as well, had a very Cheltenham win. 3-1 at home to Walsall. Cheltenham's good home record continues. Uh, and the goals felt very Mike Duff's Cheltenham. Uh, again, not no frills really. But in this 3-5-2 system, you'll often see this goal. It gets worked into the, the inside channel. Uh, and then a, an overlap from the wing back, a cutback, and a, and a good finish. Alfie May, having joined uh, last week from Doncaster, one of a, one of very few permanent signings that we've seen so far in this window, uh, already looks like he's enjoying playing regularly and enjoying playing for this uh, Cheltenham side, which is what they needed after the injury of Luke Varney. And then the craziest game, George, of the whole weekend was Mansfield and Forest Green. Uh, Richie Wellens summing up what everyone was thinking by saying, I just can't believe Forest Green have scored four. But mm. then on the flip side, they very rarely concede three as well. That was absolute carnage. Yeah, it was uh, a ridiculous game uh, where Mansfield probably felt like they did, you know, they were deservedly heading for victory uh, only to, to be paired back to 3-2. And then Nicky Maynard getting what looked like the equaliser only for them to lose it very late on. Um, it's tough to take, especially... Um, for uh, you know, a Mansfield team who really struggled to, to get going this season. I'm currently in 19th position. And Forest Green, a side who have, you know, have, I guess have kind of underperformed, you have to say. Um, despite really impressive parts of the season, you have to think that they've, especially in recent weeks, not exerted their dominant dominance in games as they should. They haven't scored the goals as well that they should. Uh, built on a pretty uh, strong defence. Um, signs, I think, you know, Graham Coughlin will take credit and take... Uh, you know, solace in the fact that he scored three goals against one of the uh, league's meanest defences. I think possibly the league's meanest defence before this game. Um, so signs of, of some life there and good for, for Nicky Maynard to get that goal. 
Um, but for Forest Green, this is the kind of result and kind of performance that could really kickstart their season now. Um, they're in seventh position. They're on 44 points. They'll feel like they should have more. Um, but from third down to seventh, all of them sharing 44 points at the moment. It wouldn't take much. Uh, you know, it's not going to take many wins in a row to, to, for a team to really solidify themselves into the third and, and, and the third team behind Swindon and Exeter. Yeah, Plymouth, another one of those sides on 44 as our crew. Both of those guys have, have played 25 games, so they've got games in hand. Plymouth uh, getting a really good away win at Carlisle. Pretty straightforward this one. Two more goals from Jeffcott. Uh, a remarkable story, really given that this lad was on loan at Truro uh, just 10 days ago, I suppose, and he, he's come back um, and uh, and scored a brace in consecutive league games, which is brilliant. Uh, we knew that they were still going to be in the market for a striker. That was clear. And they've brought in Ryan Hardy on loan from Fleetwood. He was previously at Rangers. Hasn't really got a look in at Fleetwood with Madden and with Ched Evans, uh, but he did score a very nice goal, and Plymouth fans will be hoping he can do more of that, Tyreek Backinson, another addition that they've made already early on in this window. Uh, a very classy assist for him as well and, and looks like he is slotted into this team very well. So good news for those of us who are on the uh, uh, Plymouth bandwagon, so to speak. Uh, and a good away win and a much needed away win for Newport County. Uh, they were certainly helped by a moronic red card from Lee Novak of Scunthorpe uh, when the scores were level, but... Jamil Matt and Padraig Amond have been getting um, a bit of stick recently for not scoring at, at the rate that we expect from them. Uh, this was a Newport side that hadn't won in 10 games in the league, which has seen them slide right down the table. But this was a big win at Scunthorpe uh, and credit to Mike Flynn and this side for, for sort of getting over the line. They've only scored nine goals away from home all season, which is really holding them back. So League Two just like League One, just like the Championship, so much intrigue, uh, still very congested. We feel really privileged, I think, to cover these leagues at the moment. We pointed out that uh, the, the gap between Liverpool and the second-place team in the Premier League, basically, if you threw a blanket over uh, the, the same size gap over uh, League One, you, you, you include about 14 teams in that. So it's great for us to be covering. Uh, we're looking forward to Friday night on Sky. So please make sure you tune into that if you're free on Friday night. Um, otherwise, it's time to head to the second part of the podcast, which is with Blades Analytic, Jay Sosick, talking about recruitment and his work within the game. <laughs> Yeah, so as guests for this podcast go, uh, there are a few that would get me quite as excited as half an hour or so chatting recruitment with Blades Analytic, also known as Jay Sosick. Jay, thank you, honestly, for joining us finally on Not The Top 20 podcast, because we've had a couple of close shaves in terms of getting you on, haven't we? We definitely have, yeah. I've been I've been meaning to get behind Main Street for a while. Nicely done. There was there was even one pod just to just to let the listeners peek behind the curtain. There was one podcast that we'd planned for. I think it was June. I think it was a, a bit of summer content uh, where you're actually due to get the train to London. We were going to have a few pints and uh, record some good stuff, and then you got ill. I think it was food poisoning. It was a nightmare. I want to get into what happened one night in late May. I seem to remember it was the night of the Europa League final. Uh, and you were doing your usual, you know, mixture of analysis and opinions on Twitter. I think it was Christy Pym you were talking about, who was signing for Peterborough, uh, and the posh chairman Darren McCantony was uh, exchanged in. Well, it was an exchange with you about 
video analysis and data analysis and scouting, etc. Uh, and I just chipped in with, uh, by the way, DMAC, you should hire Jay because he really knows what he's talking about. And then the next day you announced, like a footballer, that you'd signed for Peterborough. <laughs> that was a remarkable 24 hours or so. Can you just fill fill in the blanks for me there? Yeah, I'm not sure I've ever repaid you back enough beer for the recruitment fee that you did as a finder's fee. <laughs> but it was uh, it was real. Um, it, it was just, as you say, simply just doing what I normally do out there on Twitter, commenting and, and, and responding to comments. And it was just a, a little conversation. And, and DMAC came back with a, a bit of a comment back uh, regards to the fact that he likes data and analytics, um, which I kind of already knew anyway from various historical podcasts and pieces he'd done. I, I know he uses data in his business as well as football. Um, and then we, we kind of had a bit of a, a an agreement that the numbers tell you a lot, but the, the the real evidence lies within a filtered list of numbers and then the video scouting. And the next day, um, I, I emailed Dara um, from that conversation. He emailed me back. There was a little bit of back and forth. And uh, he, he came forward with an offer. And um, I think quite quite luckily it was well-timed. It was something that Peter Brewer were happy to look into. They were trying to expand the scouting department a little bit more. Um, it, it wasn't a full-time job, so it's remote. I, I do it from home. Um, so I still have my normal day job, if you will. Yeah, um, I feel, I feel I, like something that's been overlooked because you are so prolific <laughs> Uh, when it comes to this stuff but this was very much uh, a side hustle right you you have a day job in something like quite impressive I'm gonna say a civil engineer or something similar are you building bridges in real life sustain aircraft oh wow so I, I I'm, a, I'm an engineering analyst so I use data in that job as well there you go and uh, well let's get into the posh stuff because you're in you're on board there just in time for the summer transfer window to open what did what did the work start to look like? What, were, what was asked of you and, and how different was it to what you were doing before as what you might call a fanalist? Yeah, so it was, it was quite different. Um, Dara originally had, had, had kind of hired myself and um, less, less Twitter sphere. Um, a first, uh, well, I say a first team scout, but he hired a, a, another eyes on the ground scout and our job was predominantly to be the gems. So he wanted us to look up and down the, the EFL um, maybe even the Premier League too, with the under-23s, the National League and below. And he wanted us to find those players that Peterborough are quite renowned for signing. Um, so he just wanted more eyes and different angles working on that. So that's how it started in the summer. A lot of the targets that Posh brought in in the summer had already been decided with the team, the management team and, and Dara and Barry Fry. So it was all kind of all, all arranged there. So there wasn't really any need for an impact there. But um, it, it became very quickly... Um, a little bit more than just a gem kind of scouting job. It, it was Dara throwing me ideas on, on players um, that they were looking at or had been offered or situations had changed. Football is so fluid. It's unbelievable. Day-to-day it changes um, with contracts and, and availability. And from there, I was producing data scouting reports with some video analysis from, uh, analysis from myself as well and sending them to the chairman, probably pumping out about five or six a day. Um, and this would include all their numbers, uh, all the kind of charts that I do on Twitter that people seem to like, um, uh, amongst some of the stuff as well as with strengths and weaknesses and some video scouting. So it, it kind of went from a, can you find me the next, you know, under 23 who's going to be a star who I can bring in to let's look at first team scouting as well. 
And in terms of which club to to start your journey within the game, I mean, Peterborough, one of the most consistently active clubs in the EFL recruitment-wise, just couldn't really have been more perfect, I I guess, in terms of, as you've spoken about there, hitting the ground running, but also the people that you're now working with and and talking to on a day-to-day level in terms of getting an insight of what it's actually like inside the game, not just what we chat about on Twitter and on this podcast. Yeah, it's, it's it's really interesting, um, and you're right that a brilliant club to start with. Because if I'm quite honest, they probably needed uh, some may argue different. They probably needed the least help in terms of recruitment I can think of it in many teams in league one. To be honest, um, just because of the way they're set already and the eyes on the ground they have, and, and the links with non-league as well that they have with through Barry Fry. But Dara is he's nothing if uh, if you've ever spoke to him or ever listened to him, he's nothing if not a bit of an innovator. He likes to move. He likes to go with the times. Um, and he's, he said himself that, you know, even from our conversations that we've had from the, the reports I present and the numbers that I look at, which is a little bit more advanced and underlying than just goals per game or, or whatnot, it's um, it, it's educated him in a way as well. Uh, so I think, it's, I think it's been good for us for us all, really. You know, he's get to see the, the, the modernised side, if you will, what I think it, is what the best clubs are doing right now in the country. Um, and I get to see how... Uh, a very successful recruitment club have done it over a number of years as well. So it, it's really quite a fusion of the two and it works quite well, I think. This window so far is no exception in terms of busyness for Posh. Uh, there is one saga ongoing that uh, we're not going to touch on here, but potentially we might look to to get you back in maybe at the start of February. We can do a review of sorts if you'd be up for that. But in terms of the, the, the incomings that have happened, I mean, Reese Brown on, on loan, someone we've spoken a lot about uh, already on this podcast over the last few years, and Jack Taylor from Barnet uh, on a permanent, he, he was someone that was kind of impressing despite their decline over a few years in League Two as a young player and, and has huge amount of game time under his belt still at quite a young age. What Can you tell me a bit about those two transfers and, and when they were, when did they start to be discussed and how did they get done? I mean, how quickly do things do things happen, I guess, is one of, is one of my questions. Uh, very, very situational dependent, actually. Um, they can be rapid or, or very slow. I think with Reese, um, everyone... Every, anyone who ever on in the League One or League Two knew that Reese would be available on loan. Um, I think Huddersfield made that quite clear as well before the start of the window. So it was just a case of, you know, sitting down with the player. I think the, the chairman and the manager sat down with the player. Um, look at the balance of the squad. Look at what we what, what we need. What does Reese add? So we had a long look at that one in terms of his strengths, um, and he brings a skill set not many others do in that league. We think with the the number of goals and assists he's capable of getting from from deeper areas, the versatility as well to. So we've a play on the right hand side of a diamond or in a, a double pivot in a two or even maybe even a number 10. So there was really a lot of upside to the Reese transfer. Um, and it gives us a lot of control as well of the ball in, in midfield moving forwards uh, as, as they bed in the new signings. So he, he's a really class act, I think, and, and he'll go on to be a, a really good loan deal. Um, with Jack, Jack's, Jack's posh recruitment all over, I think. Uh, he starred in non-league. As you said, he, he was even playing quite well as Barnett kind of declined and went out of the football league but Jack's Jack's a really technically gifted player he's got the physicality as well he doesn't look like it because he, he's kind of wiry and tall um, but he's he's quite physical he can handle duels um, we looked at the data on that he's played in a very physical league he, he's coped with that fine and he's continued to bring his te- technical prowess if you will to that level he's an ex-Chelsea academy guy so 
he's definitely got the grounding um, and he's another who will add a lot of composure and technical ability to the midfield. So moving forwards, we'd hope that those two can get on the ball and can dominate the ball, can make things happen a little bit more in games as well. So a little bit more service for, for the guys up top who have done an absolutely outstanding job so far. Yeah, spot on. Uh, what What's non-league data like for someone like yourself who needs to find the really the ideally the most accurate data that you can find that the lower down you get in my head that the more tough it it is to sort of uh, I suppose get the most accurate stuff is is there are there sites that you use where you're like yeah I know I can trust this data for the National League how, how deep does it go any below that National South National League North what are we talking yeah so I mean for those who know um the packages that clubs tend to use for video and data are, are either called in, Instat or Scout. Um, Scout covers the National League, so their data package is the same for League One and the Championship as it is for the National League. Um, so there, there is data for that level there. And then below that, it is difficult, uh, and that's where a little bit of creativity comes in from the various sources I have to pull together. So a lot of, a lot of manual work, um, a lot of looking around at websites and taking the data from the websites of various club websites, punching them into a spreadsheet, trying to get the minutes played, for example, for strikers, trying to get their goals, trying to find the ones who are scoring goals per 90 that's quite high rather than just goals per game. It's uh, it's a lot of manual work, but it's worth it because it, you do find certain gems. Um, there's been discussions on, on certain gems in non-league already who we feel as though could step up. Um, it feels and, like it feels like already in January if you're a non-league or rather a National League North or South striker and you've scored more than 15 goals then you're going to get an EFL move is is that a sort of the classic not too much financial risk involved for, for EFL clubs and potential for pretty large reward yeah I mean if you look at you know you look at the clubs who are signing some so Forest Green definitely need more goals I think everyone knows that um, a very good side but but more cutting edge up top has been needed for some time so it's no risk for them, uh, you know, quite wealthy club for that level as well. It's no risk for them to go into non-league and try and find the next gem. And if it comes off, it, it's an absolute superstar move and they're away and, and that player takes them up the leagues or gets sold on for a big fee, they can reinvest. And if it doesn't come off, it, it's not a big deal. So I think that that's why those deals kind of happen in January, especially for the strikers, as you say. Um, there's, a, there's a lot of talent as well, especially in the National League this year. I, I feel as though there's a lot of players there who can go on and do really well. Um I really like Rob Atkinson, who Oxford signed. Um, he's a he's a really impressive player, uh, quite a physical specimen. Not not the fastest in the world, but a really good ball carrier. Um, I compared him to to an Oxford t- fan to kind of Harry Maguire style. Loves to come out, carry the ball, can can take it into space, can dribble, can beat a man, and he's physically good as well. So I just think there's a lot of talent there, and you know a lot of clubs down in that league maybe not have the budget that they really need to keep these players if you really ask the question. So. A lot of the League Two clubs are in a position now to kind of work that avenue. Mm. And just to add to the excitement of working for Posh, uh, it was a few months after that, as far as I could tell, that you got involved with uh, another uh, group doing some work within the football sphere and, and recruitment. Tell me about Market Insights, how that came to be and how you came to be involved. Yeah, really exciting, uh, Market Insights. So very brief overview market insights is a a scouting and analytics company that's been formed by if you will some of the the prominent twitter guys if you will really we've kind of used our twitter skills and put them and packaged them together so for anyone who knows ram chavernas um who who run a lot of wonderful efl data before he went underground if you will (laughs) um with market um 
Tim Keach, who runs the Stop Bunching at Twitter account, who, who writes or who wrote wonderful documents on how clubs basically were doing it wrong in a lot of cases, mm. uh, from the top right down to the bottom, and how a, a club should be run to have maximum efficiency and output. So that they're squeezing absolutely every inch out of every department. And Tim's a very clever guy. And, and I think a lot of people in football, when they speak to Tim and market, they really buy into what, what we're saying and doing. So we're working with a, a fair few clubs at the minute, uh, one championship club, um, and it's it's basically to provide them with the structure of a recruitment department, um, the scouting, the video scouting, doing the scout reports. And we do that through our, our own kind of company processes, which involve um, lots of data analysis to filter down lists to match the playing style of the club that we're recruiting for, to match the budget that the club we're recruiting for have. Um, and then we, we communicate that to the club, the club's head of recruitment, and, and talk from there about narrowing down the targets further to the ones we're going to go after. So it's a, it's a really exciting venture. We work with an American club as well. Um, and we, we're speaking to other clubs at the minute as well. So we're, we're kind of getting out there. Um, it's, it's a really interesting process that we've put together. I think it's very different to a, what, a lot, what a lot of clubs do. Um, I would guess some people would look at it and say, is it like Brentford? Um, similar, maybe similar. But we're, being external, I feel as though it provides us with a lot better scope because we have a database of about three, 400 players from around Europe, not just the UK. Um, and we're able to look at a club's requirements, budget, tactical profile, technical profile and athleticism. And, and we're able to filter our database to match what the club needs. So it's a really interesting prospect moving forwards and we're really excited by, by what lies ahead. I suspect, Jay, that depending on which tier of football the clubs you're working for are in and budgets and, and various things like that but with the scope that you have uh, and and the I guess the one of the benefits of of data scouting as a first port of call is being able to um, really well not compare but to have data for people across all countries all nations all leagues that I feel like a, a part of your recruitment will be that knowledge of overseas football that it feels to me a lot of EFL clubs don't have or don't act upon very much, uh, apart from a few very notable exceptions. Brentford, one of them that you've mentioned there. Would that be would that be accurate? Yeah, I think so. Um, you know, certainly for us at, at Market, we we have a, a great team who've built a database of what we would say tiered players. So you know, for a Premier League club, for a Championship club, for a League One, League Two, and they're from everywhere. You know, I, I'm my EFL knowledge is where I'm strongest. Don't get me wrong, but we look at all France, Germany, um, minor leagues, Croatia, Denmark, everywhere you can imagine. Because I just feel like at the minute, there's a lot of talent out there in England, but the price is quite high. Um, you learn that when you're in football and you probably see it as a fan as well. When you see some of the fees that are being quoted for players who are, like, oh, you know, I wouldn't go as far as saying average, but you know, maybe they just need the right tactical role and the right team to blend with. But there's a lot of money being spent on players that, frankly probably aren't worth the money that's been spent on them mm. and you go to the continent and you find just as good if not better for a lot cheaper now obviously there is a, a conversion if you will over um yeah how do you approach trying to work out the difference in quality of leagues in quality of opposition and how a foreign player from a foreign league might translate into the english game i, I guess that is one of the key questions and one of the constant <laughs> battles 
it's the million dollar question. I'd imagine for any company out there that kind of do this. But I, I think the honest answer is right now, there is some very clever people working at that. I don't think you can say, here's an algorithm that does that. Um, simply because I think it's very individual. Some characters come from certain leagues and adapt to England, not a problem. When you look at the guys Brentford have been bringing in, not all have been a successes, but 95% have. <coughs> some some have come across and have not been a success. Um, Bristol City have, have dipped their toes in the French market, um, obviously with Famara Deju and Masengo. They've also had Loic Dione a while back, who was a complete bust, but mm-hmm. who went back to France and did well. So, it, you know, it, it's very individual. Um, it, it's really hard to tell. I think a lot of it comes down to personality. Obviously, league strength will, will play a part. Certainly, I feel as though Germany is a league that's very, especially the, the Spy Bundesliga, if you will, the, the German Championship. I think that's very similar in physical style to the EFL. Um, it, it's very high paced. It's very intense pressing. There's not a lot of time on the ball. So that, that kind of matches what I see in the Championship, League One and League Two as well. Um, but it, it really is a case of just judging that individually, to be honest. Have you worked out uh, over the course of, of applying your skills and your knowledge to the reality of the football world in your various different roles, that there are any particular positions, as in positions on the pitch or roles, that you feel you personally are, are, are sort of stronger in terms of being able to identify talent? Uh, and, and I suppose on the flip side, which are the hardest? I know that there's always been plenty of discussion in the in the analytics world about how to judge defenders and defensive uh, metrics is that it, 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 have you got sort of things on at, at both sides of that coin yeah i think probably that's really interesting that because we've had this chat recently within the market framework um so myself I, I would say myself um and the guys at market again just to repeat who they are so it's kevin elvick who runs swans analytics as well swansea fan um, and, and Matt Lawrence, who runs Bananas and Nutmegs, we all probably would say we're good at finding, through data especially, uh, a number six, if you will. So a deep-lying playmaker, someone who can break up play and distribute really well, if you think of Calvin Phillips, Ollie Norwoods, um, Ben Pearsons, those types. We, we think probably the data is really good on those people. We can look at data and metrics that we have built our own on our own data um, for progressive passers, um, ball progression metrics so we're able to split the pitch up and work out who's playing the, the, the difficult passes and completing them more often than others um, which are, a difficult pass is, is kind of picking up in that centre circle and playing a vertical pass through to your striker or a number 10 if you imagine um, we don't want too many passes going out wide you want it straight into the feet there and, and those guys are I would say easier to find through the data especially and then confirm your bias on video mm. I think yes defenders are difficult to find with data but I actually think the data has guided us quite well to some excellent defenders um, who and then when we've watched the video have confirmed that. I actually think strikers are the hardest to find. Um, you know, with expected goals, it's added in a layer of deeper understanding to a striker and the chances they have and, and how they finish those chances. But it doesn't tell you a lot about the rest of their game. Mm. Um it's really hard to look at a striker. You know, you will do all the normal parameters to find the strikers that are either over or underperforming XG, dependent on what we're looking for. But then to find out, can they link? Do they make the right runs? Um, are they strong enough with back to goal? Those type of things are really hard. Um, and you need to watch a lot of football to find out those things. You don't have data metrics for those. So I actually think strikers are probably just as hard as centre-backs to find the, the really good ones. Um 
I think with centre-backs, once you get a flavour of the data in terms of how they are in duels, how they are at winning the ball in the air, on the floor, you can probably look at position on video and see a centre-back and think, yeah, you know what you're doing. So That sort of leads into the first of a couple of questions that we had sent in uh, when I tweeted that you're coming on the pod and uh, as expected, everyone pretty excited about it. Uh, Dave, uh, on this point, said, is an individual's data likely to be influenced by how their team plays and the tactics employed by the team's manager so there could be a player that's that's better than their numbers suggest because they're playing a, a certain role they're getting certain instructions by the manager I, I i think something that i i i noticed recently i was talking to someone who's interested in in this area uh who was looking at fullbacks across the efl who make progressive passes and progressive runs and that sort of thing and Cruise fullbacks come up very well in League Two in terms of progressive passing. Perry and G, Harry Pickering. Now, they are both very good players that I rate a lot, but there was a, a, a nagging feeling in my head that their style of play was also likely boosting these numbers. Uh, what do you think about, about that sort of question, that topic? Yes, it's spot on. Yes, they are. Um, team, team style of play is 100% one of the biggest caveats within recruitment especially if you're using analytics it really is um you know you'll see players be signed in the summer for clubs and if you looked at the data from last season or the season before it might not be anything special yet then they turn up at a new club and pitch up and they perform the best they've ever done and it's it's really difficult to, to weed out the ones that are, are really good players from the ones that are in a really good team and, and most of the league could probably operate in that role mm. so um, I, I wouldn't want to say that we have any secrets with that. What we'll look at is we'll look at maybe something called what we like to do is, is relative metrics. So if you take your team as the baseline rather than the league, at, league if you will. So obviously, Pickering and NG, if you were to look at, at their Scout profile, yes, they're really high for the progressive passing and runs metrics because they get a lot of the ball and they get a lot of space to do so. However, there might be a player, for example, Luther Wilding at Stevenage, who... Actually, if you look at the percentage of carries he does for his team, mm. it's the same as what Pickering and NG do. Mm. The actual total number is different, but the percentage is the same. So it's just, you know, without getting into the boringness and granularity of data, it's just another way of looking. And what we find when we do that is, if you imagine the scatter charts that you see on Twitter, you know, with the two axes and the two metrics, a lot of the time, when we look at percentage of, of actions compared to total actions, there might well be a difference, but some of the names still appear in that golden top right corner that you want to appear in. And those are the guys that, yes, team style could still be affecting that, but ultimately, you do your due diligence from video there after that. Because if the data is telling you that this is not only someone who's, who's hitting a lot of these numbers that are good, they're also playing a lot of those numbers considering their own team level that's good. I want to take a look further and see if it's just that the team play a wonderful shape and they have loads of space and time, or are they actually just really good? <laughs> okay, next question from Ollie Walker, great friend of the pod. Wanted to know what the main difference between your expectations of working in recruitment versus the reality? It's a great question from Ollie, isn't it? Um, <laughs> I would probably say... It's a really difficult one. I think probably how fast football moves. I think we we all, as fanalists um, or as bloggers or, or whatever it may be, we all have this feeling that clubs are probably not doing it right in terms of planning. Um, certainly a lot of clubs and maybe 
with a little bit more of a longer mid to long term strategy of recruitment of isolating and analysing players you could drift into a transfer window with three four targets for each position that have had all the due diligence and you, you know you're talking to and you're just whittling out the financials to find the best option and yes I still think that is what you want to do but I, I've seen that that is very hard to do um, because football changes so much so you might have a player that you have lined up in a certain position who you've done the work on you think yeah we're quite happy with this guy some flaws but quite strong and then especially in the EFL an agent will bring to you a player from a Premier League club who's in their under 23 team who has an absolute superstar future ahead of him and who wants six months worth of football and you have to question everything mm-hmm. because you know do we want we know this guy who's coming from the Premier League club is a, is a star is an absolute star he's going to be a star um, if you look at the guys from Chelsea who've gone recently here, Bikane on a hold, these guys are levels above the, the level they've been playing at. So you're going to get a wonderful six months, but is that six months what you want or do you want to bring someone in for three years? And Do you have the financials to do so? So that's probably the fluidity of football and how quick things change is one thing. And the other thing I've been surprised at is probably how, I don't want to sound offensive, I guess, here, but um, how not smart some clubs are mm. uh, what you're here what you hear is happening and you hear how agent-led certain clubs are and i say that as a person who gets on with agents i talk to certain agents and i, I think they are very much needed in, in some cases in the game and do a good job in others but there's some clubs out there that probably enter transfer windows with no real idea what they want um, they're, just, they're just waiting for agents to bring them players mm. now they will scout those players of course they will and they will do their final says but you know, it's not like they have a, a list of players who have been given to them. They've looked at the numbers. They've looked at the video. They, they, you know, at the very least, they've gone through those initial steps. I think a lot of clubs out there don't actually do that. Um, and it, it's, I wouldn't say it's worrying, but it, when the money that you see being spent and what's happening to certain clubs, you think to yourself, I, I would want to be a bit smarter if I were you. Especially because these agents, not all of them, as you say, but many of them, then they're not working in the best interests of the club. They're working in the best interests of their client, which is absolutely what they should be doing. But for the for the fees that they get paid by clubs, you know that that seems quite inefficient, doesn't it? Not ideal, especially when there are you know groups like Market Insights, may I say, who uh, for a fraction of that <laughs> price, um, and that, this is your appearance fee, by the way, who for uh, <laughs> who for a fraction of that price will work with within the best interests of the club. I think that's that's really interesting. A couple more questions coming here. The big question at the moment. Something that I've spoken about a fair bit in my own opinions and my own research is quite negative on this. But um, Sam on Twitter asked, how effective do January signings tend to be in the overall context of a season? I'm sure you would have had opinions on this before getting involved in football. And it might be interesting to see how you feel about this in a few years time when you've had a few more January transfer windows under your belt. But what, what are generally your thoughts on that? It's a really difficult one, um, simply because I feel like it's really individualistic. Some clubs will succeed in January. Um, don't mean to refer back to last season. I'm a Sheffield United fan. We had an excellent January. We we bought in players that might not have massively been first-team players, but that contributed to our eventual success and played quite a big part in that. So that you know that, that was a, a successful January. There, there is those that exist. I think the Probably the reason why most are unsuccessful is because <laughs> it's really hard to get your number one target in January. Um, as I've explained previously, the, the ever-changing fluidity of football in terms of who's going where and for how much, 
then there's medicals to sort out and completely you know you want a comprehensive medical especially if you're an efl club you don't want to sign someone who's then got a problem a year down the line then there's there's, there's just a lot to sort out and i think that the reason you see a lot of loan deals in january is because a financially it doesn't make sense for clubs to buy a player in january um because you've only got six months of the season left so why commit to doing so you you'd you don't know. In a lot of these leagues, look at League One, the championship, the points differential between the playoffs and, say, 17th is hardly anything. Mm. So the club recruiting in 14th, they, you know, there's no point in them signing a player to be in that league next year. They could be in the championship if they're in League One, you know, with a good run. But then, might... but then people, certainly fans in those positions tend to think, God, if it's so tight and we're here, then one extra player or two extra players could be the difference to get us over the line. That's the That's the sort of narrative that I, I i tend to try and sort of push back on ever so slightly because it can be quite dangerous i mean a lot of clubs a lot of clubs also at this stage of the season will have probably maxed out their budget in in the summer when you know when there is a bit more value about and when you, you know you're trying to tool up for the season as a whole yeah precisely it's, it's a dangerous game to play um I, I, you know it's not a problem spending the money if you plan to do so some clubs are smart and maybe plan for a summer budget and a January budget so that they had some money to fall on if they wanted to to commit or maybe if they were in trouble and wanted to have a go. There'll be clubs out there this January that will spend money that they don't have. Um, definitely, 100%. It'll either be taken out of next summer or the summer's after budget or it'll be got back by selling players. Mm. Um, and there's no doubt that will probably happen. That's why, again, a lot of the loan deals happen. Although I do have a problem with the loan deals um, in certain examples because... Certainly, certain loan deals have quite a high fee attached to them, a loan fee, mm. with a lot of questions, especially from the higher-level teams that, that come with playing. And I just feel as though if you're in a position to have a go at promotion or maybe stay up, yes. If you're, if you're in that mid-table rut who can maybe achieve a playoff position but most likely won't, you know, what what is a six-month short-term fix going to do? I'd rather you look within, within your own infrastructure, look at your own academy, look at your own squad, are we being efficient with our squad and academy? Is there someone there we can play and develop? Mm. Because I feel like that's where the true value is. I might work as a recruitment analyst, but I don't. I don't support buying players for the sake of buying players. Um, as a fan, I always loved my club, and I always loved looking at the uh, clubs that are buying people in January because it's great to debate on. Uh, some but, of Chrissy Wilder's January signings, you know, wow. <laughs> I mean, wow. Some of them have really been remarkable over the last few years as the club have moved up. Moved up the leagues, finding out. Uh, I can't actually remember if Ricky Holmes was a summer or a January signing, but finding out January was he January? Finding out that he's still contracted to the club was quite a quite a remarkable thing to work out the other day. Um, let me move on. Uh, Biscuit Analytic, who clearly inspired by your own Twitter account uh, with that name, asks: Outside of Brentford and of course Peterborough, uh, which clubs do you think have the most cohesive recruitment strategies in the EFL, and and what makes those better than others? That's an excellent question. Um, so I'm, I'm probably going to fly a flag for the non-data team here and say I think Preston's recruitment is fantastic. Um, I think they've done something that in concept is, is quite simple. They've, they've found themselves in this lofty kind of position in the championship, which although they don't have a massive budget, what it does is it allows them to go and, and if you will, pick off the best of the EFL. So we've seen them sign Stockley. I know Bayless has not been involved, but they've signed Bayless. And they're basically bringing in the players. I know Patrick Bauer from Charlton has been a great signing. They're signing the players that maybe other bigger clubs in the championship are 
again, what's the word to use without being disrespectful? Too proud to sign, maybe. Mm. I didn't see a lot. I didn't see a lot of Championship clubs really hustling to get Patrick Bauer in the summer from Charlton. Yet everyone who'd watched him knew he was a level above League One. He's a player who can play on the ball. He's physical, quite versatile as well. He can play a different couple of positions. So you look at that and you think there's clubs out there that are paying, again, lots of money, wages and fees to centre-backs when Patrick Bauer was a perfectly serviceable option. So, you know, I think Preston's recruitment is excellent. Um, I'm, I'm not sure how they do it. I'm pretty sure it's probably scout-based. Not, you know, not data-first approach. Um, another couple, Coventry, they've got some really good recruitment at Cov mm-hmm. and they do use lots of data in their Coventry uh, um, recruitment. So they've signed some excellent players in the summer. Um, Michael Rowe has been probably my favourite. So, I know you guys spoke to the, the guys who run Pure Fit Bar in the summer. Yeah. And they they labelled Rose as the best one to come down from Scotland that year. And I, I think it's shown, hasn't it? He's absolutely outstanding on the ball. Mm. He's a really good aggressive passer, quite mobile, so can play in a back two and three. And he's a good defender as well. At 23, they are going to make nothing but big profit on him. So, um, you know, he, they, they have really good recruitment. And they've gone abroad for a little bit of it. They've bought in a great loan in Liam Walsh as well. So they've been really clever, Coventry. Um, probably Fleetwood as well, I'd say. Fleetwood have got decent recruitment as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they, they tend to bring in really good players who, Joey, Joey, to be fair, Joey Barton really kind of keeps them at a level or takes them a level higher, actually, when you think of Paddy Madden and Shea going back there. I, I really like that. He's a, he's a really good... Uh, they, they pick up a lot of players who seem to be undervalued. I know they've signed Louis Coyle on a permanent. Mm. That's a really good signing as well. And then probably, I'm League One focused here, I guess, rather than League Two, but the other club I really have to give dibs to is Accrington. Yeah. Because how they do it, I don't know. You know, I'm out there promoting a world of, of data analytics is definitely the way to go forward, even at a lower level. I don't even think Accrington have probably got more than two scouts. It's it's all Coley doing it all with his, his staff. And it's incredible to pull out Colby Bishop, um, you know, to pull out the guys that they do. Jerome Apoko on loan is an absolute superstar. Sam Finley is someone that's been flagged yeah. up on occasion as well. Yeah, Sam Finley, um, you know, Zanzala last season. It, it's just it, it's just a, a complete conveyor belt of talent. They constantly bring it in. And because Coley's such a good manager as well, it, he's making them into probably more than what they are as well. Uh, they mm. are obviously more than the sum of their parts. And we, we've seen that over the years. You know, McConville has this incredible data for years and he probably wouldn't have that if he went somewhere else to kind of refer back to an earlier question but because they go in the Accrington framework where everyone knows their job so well they just they they can pull value out of nowhere like no other club can so I really like their recruitment as well that's interesting you say that they are one of those teams and there are teams that pop up normally just year to year but sometimes the teams that perform better than the sum of their parts uh, quite often when those teams get picked apart by bigger clubs signing their individual players who have impressed, it, 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 you don't always get the same output at the next club. Uh, and, yeah. and that's where, you know, I guess that's where the manager is still so important and the way that they set their team up, the way that they get whatever they get out of individual players. That's uh, quite an important one. Uh, any other clubs you had in mind there? Final one was probably just going to be Swindon with Wellens this year. Um, I, I think they recruited really well, bought some great players in. Jordan Lydon was a great signing. Uh, obviously, the loan signings of the strikers have, have been fantastic. I know Doyle's gone back now, but he, he's a great example there, Do- Doyle, of, of exactly what you're saying. Past past history tells you he can score goals, had a couple of years off the boil, but goes to a manager who plays to his, his style, 
who gives him service that he wants and that obviously man manages him well and, and you get an incredible goal scorer. So mm. it, it is it is all part of that recruitment bubble. Everyone has a you know everyone has a, a, a part in a place in that. But once the player arrives at the club, it doesn't just end. You know, the manager has to be coaching them and the manager has to be getting the best out of them in the right system, especially for marquee signings, you know, the ones that are costing a little bit more. The manager has to be playing them to the correct style. Otherwise, the, you know, any signing, 75 grand to 500 grand, it won't matter if you're not servicing them how they need to be. Mm. Right. Brendan Pitcher asked, uh, at an estimate, don't expect you to know exactly, but in your estimation, how many clubs do you think now in the EFL are not using any form of data scouting in their recruitment process? If it's a percentage, that's fine as well. What do you reckon? Probably about 70%. Really? Yeah, I think so. I think so from clubs that I know and speak to, um, from from guys I know working at clubs. I guess it means, it, it, it would depend on what you meant by, you know, data usage because performance analysts at clubs who do all the video analysis for the first team, mm. they'll, in the EFL, they're multifaceted. They will work on recruitment as well with the manager and the scouting staff, and they will probably look at some basic numbers, not a problem. So they will use data in their, their recruitment strategy, but a specific data analytics department, so Fleetwood, I know they use a guy or a team. As I said, Coventry definitely do. We all know about the Brentford model. Um, but I, I don't think many use that many. I mean, you know, it, it's very dependent upon what the director of football or the manager or the chairman wants We've all listened to podcasts with Victor Orta at Leeds who they said, yep, they have an algorithm, but frankly, they use 80% video mm. and feel because that's what they feel works best for them. It really is what the clubs feel works best for them, what their budget is for staff as well. Some clubs are that low budgeted, they'd rather spend it on players than getting staff in to do it, which obviously I'm biased, but I think that's wrong. Um, I, you know, For me, it goes back to the old baseball analogy. I, I just feel as though one squad slash reserve player could pay for a whole analytics department at an EFL mm. club. Yeah. It really could. Um, and and the, the output you would get from that analytics department would pay that, their salaries back, if you will. Yeah. Um, they, they, it would pay for itself, whereas a squad player is just swallowing up wages, probably not you know contributing much to your first team. So a lot of footballs out there probably hate me for that. But that, that's, that's what I feel anyway. I feel as though a lot of clubs could be smarter and, and certainly a lot aren't being as smart as they could. But one of the interesting things... Certainly, as someone who follows a lot of the analytics community and has got to know various different uh, analysts and and that sort of thing, one of the things I think, and and you're too modest to sort of agree or whatever, but but one of the things I think that's that's helped you become successful in your sphere and and build your Twitter account before you were even working within clubs is is not is your acceptance of not just a, a, a blind sort of almost religious belief in just the data but as someone who came to data I think fairly late in your football fandom actually an understanding of the human side of the game and therefore the big question in data which is uh, one of the big sticking points is co- often communication of what it is that you're suggesting how how you actually communicate uh, things that, that you think clubs need to do better uh, in a way that doesn't put people off. And, and that is quite a key thing that I, I feel like you have the skill to to be able to talk to the person within football who has never heard of XG uh, and also the person who thinks XG is the greatest thing in the world. Do you, is that something that you've worked on or recognised or does that just come naturally? Uh, probably a bit of both. Um, 
I, I studied performance analysis at university, so that was all video at the time. There was some what they call notational analysis, just counting events, but it wasn't on the level of data I use now. So I, I was more of a video analysis than, and a coach, really. Um, so I guess understanding of football and the kind of more intangibles have always been there. But yeah, we obviously worked on it a little bit because you talk, when you talk to people in football, whoever it may be, players, agents, coaches, head of recruitment, chairmen, most don't have any clue, for example, what expected goals is, mm. and the value of it, how it can help, how it can not help if you look at it too much. You know, the, yeah. they don't know the strengths and weaknesses of, of certain concepts. And I think that goes for data analytics overall. They don't see the value. They still don't see the value. Because the value is that data analytics are always going to be used best at the clubs at the top. So the best people right now in the world who use data analytics and recruitment are Liverpool. You could argue Brentford but are Liverpool because of what they're achieving. And they will always be able to be the best at data analytics because they have the most smart people and they have a budget to throw at it. And they also have a big database of players because they can, you know, they have the budget to go and sign a £70 million player or to sign a £10 million one. If you're a League One club, Right now, you don't have the budget to go and sign whoever the data says is good. So you have to be reliant upon scouting as well in your eyes to say, this player might have only got five goals this season or the centre mid might only have got a couple of assists. But actually, he works really well box to box. He can tackle, he can do all the things my eyes tell me. However, a recruitment analytics department or a person doing analytics can marry your view up with what the data is saying with numerous games in a season or even better numerous seasons and say actually this player tends to perform these actions the most that's not to say he's good at them it's not to say he's bad at them he tends to do these actions the most thereby your view is either right or your eyes might not be seeing everything on that one game that you watched most scouts will watch maybe five six games before properly recommending a player mm. that's five six ninety minutes on our data for example at Market Insights, on the data I look up for Posh, I'm looking at two seasons worth of 46 games. Yeah. So the data tells me more than the eyes ever can in terms of shaping a profile of how a player likes to play the game, what style they do, what do they do in certain situations, what are they good at, what are they bad at. So I, I just feel as though a lot of clubs, that that's where the smartness needs to come. That They could filter out all of this noise that the agent talk comes, all of this kind of recommendations, they could filter it all out quite quickly with the use of a data department. And I feel as though that's where the interpretation between the two, that's where it's key because then you can communicate what the data tells you against what the eyes tell you. Well, you're communicating it perfectly well on the on this podcast. <laughs> Last question before I let you go. And I'm so grateful for the time and expert insight you've given us so far. Uh, this comes from your colleague, Ram, uh, and he <laughs> is asking something that I've always wondered. Uh, how do you manage to supersede the universally accept accepted limit of 24 hours in a day? Uh, you're a man with a, a a day job, with uh, now a job with Peterborough, and your work with Market Insights as well. Is it is it uh, is it coffee? Is it pure passion? What fuels you? Um. Also, you have a child. Sorry, I just remembered that. I That's quite key as well. I do have a three-year-old child as well. <laughs> uh, I, I, honestly, it's probably, I, you know, without being corny, it probably is passion. I, I've always dreamt of wanting to work in football. I now have that opportunity to work in football and I am doing everything in my power to ensure that my future is in football, perhaps even full-time. 
um you know that that's where it's at i love my career that i do as a day job i do i, I really like it but if the job was there and financially made sense for my family and my, me then there is going to be no choice football will win and i will want to do that full-time in future so i think it's just a really driven attitude to try and make something of these opportunities that i've been given I, i'm very grateful to dara and peterborough to give me that first opportunity i'm great very grateful for the guys at um, market as well insights because what we have going there i think could be quite big in football um and certainly the clubs we're talking to are very multifaceted very varied at various levels but some some really big names in there who who've been in football a long time and have been clever in football as well uh, and they seem to think that we're doing something quite innovative so it's really good feedback to hear that and it also makes you continue to log scout reports and, and look at data at two in the morning when the world outside is asleep well the best thing of all is that you have been certainly one of the greatest supporters of our podcast which we've always been so grateful for so uh, somehow this is only the first time that we've actually got you on the airwaves but uh, given that we haven't really spoken about any individual Jan- January transfer deals or anything like that, um, there's still plenty to be done over the next few weeks. Can I trouble you for for another hour or so uh, once this window closes and we can go through some individual clubs and some individual deals? Absolutely. Yeah, I'd love to do that. That'd be fantastic. Just no one, no one, no one shouts at me if the deals aren't quite right at certain clubs. <laughs> okay, mate. Well, thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much, mate.